Um, how's everybody doing? If only we could sing like that, right? Um, well, let's, uh, we're going to jump into a new series today uh, called Essentials, Know What You Believe. And there are some doctrines of the Christian faith that I refer to as open-handed doctrines. These are, by the way, I lifted a lawnmower yesterday, Friday. Shouldn't have done that. So that's the just-in-case. Uh, thank you, Jason. Um, don't try and put a lawnmower in the back of your car. That's the moral of, one of the morals of today. Um, so, uh, so there's some doctrines of the, uh, of the Christian faith that I would refer to as open-handed issues. These are, these are issues or beliefs of the Christian church, of theology, that uh, we could argue about, that nobody's going to lose their salvation over, for example, how you understand the book of Revelation, how you understand when it is that Jesus is going to return, the signs of his return. And there's people that have different, different uh, opinions about that. But, but being on one side of the issue or another side of the issue, nobody's going to lose uh, their place in heaven as a result of that. But then there are also what I would call closed-handed issues. So we've got open-handed issues, we've got closed-handed issues. And the closed-handed issues are ones that, if you disagree about these, these are ones that we're going to duke it out over. These are issues like the resurrection, whether or not it happened. These are issues like the sinlessness of Christ when he was here on the earth. These are issues like the virgin birth. These are issues like, was Jesus really God in the flesh? And so these are closed-handed issues. And so in this sermon series, what I'd like to do is to tackle some of these issues one at a time. And today, because it's Easter, right? We're going to take a look at the resurrection, which is one of these closed-handed issues. And so what I want to do is I want to help us believe in this essential doctrine of the faith. Because if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that he really died and then came back from the grave, then you are not what the Bible would call a believer. You don't believe, so you're not a believer. There's plenty of people sitting in churches. There's some people that are standing up this morning in front of their churches that don't believe in this essential, closed-handed doctrine of the faith. And because of that, the Bible says, even though they may be a pastor, that they are not a believer. There's no place for them in heaven. So that's what we want to take a look at um, today is this idea of the resurrection. Uh, did it really happen? And so I want to help us believe in this by giving us some evidence to that regard. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip over with me to John chapter 11 and verse 22 or 23, John chapter 11 and verse 23. Uh, it's page 800 in your pew Bible, or you can follow along with us on the screen. We're going to pop it up here on the screen. And um, I just want to give you a little bit of background of this text. This is on Saturday. Jesus will be on the cross the following Friday. So Jesus is in the last week of his life, and he's talking to Martha. And he's arrived at the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus, who, interestingly enough, has been dead for three days. And Jesus says to Martha, hey, look, I'm going to raise him from the dead. And he's having a conversation. Uh, in just a minute, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he's having a conversation with her to that regard about him rising Lazarus from the dead, as if to say, hey, uh, don't be so surprised in less than a week from now when I die, but then three days later, Myself am raised from the dead. And so he's having this conversation with Martha about what he's ready to do to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. So let's stand and read together from John chapter 11, verse 23. John chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. Jesus' conversation with Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. Let's read together. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, 
I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You may be seated. Now that's the essential question, isn't it? Okay, Jesus says, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me. Uh, even though they die, will go on to live. And then he says, do you believe this, Martha? This this is an essential closed-handed issue here, Martha. Do you believe this? So that's the question that we want to take a look at today. Jesus was constantly telling people that he was going to rise from the dead, that he was going to conquer the grave. He told this to his enemies in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. He said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus said this to his friends, told them that he was going to rise from the dead. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and then on the third day that he would be raised back to life, that he would rise from the dead. Jesus said this to crowds of people. In John chapter 2 and verse 19, it's recorded, Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. What are you talking about? You're going to rebuild it in three days. Um, And and so Jesus replies, verse 21, but the temple that he had spoken of was the temple of his own body. You know, it's interesting that the enemies of Jesus taunted him with the claims that he made while he was on the cross, with the claims that he had made about rising from the dead. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 40, for instance, they say to him while he's on the cross, you who were going to destroy the temple. So here they are talking about this claim that Jesus made that, hey, look, if you destroy me, I'll rise from the dead. They misunderstood it. So they're saying to him, hey, you who said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross, they say. Friends, everybody in Israel knew that Jesus had made this claim that he was going to rise from the dead. This was front page news. Even the rabbis who didn't follow Jesus' ministry all that closely, they knew he was out there. They had some feelers out there that were tracking him and stuff like that, but they weren't themselves following Jesus around. Even they knew that Jesus had made this claim. For instance, look at Matthew 27 and verse 63. This They come to Pilate and they're asking Pilate for some soldiers to come and guard the tomb of Jesus. They say to him, Sir, Pilate, we remember when he was alive that this deceiver, they're referring to Jesus, said, after three days, I will rise again. I mean, even the rabbis, even the doctors of the law, the great politicians of Jesus' day, they all knew that Jesus had said this. And so my point is that this is front, this idea that Jesus is going to rise from the dead after three days, this was front page news all over Israel. Everybody knew that Jesus had made this claim. But the point is, did he do it? Did he really rise from the dead? And so what I want to do this morning and over the course of the series is to give evidences or proof that would, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, prove that this particular event happened, in this case, the resurrection. And so I got four evidences that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, The first of those evidences is the Roman soldiers, the Roman soldiers. Do you remember when the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and they said in Matthew 27 and verse 63, They said, sir, we remember that while Jesus was still alive, that the deceiver Jesus said that after three days he would rise again. 
And then they go on to say, verse 64, So, because of that, please give the order for, some, for his tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come by night and steal the body and say to the people, Hey, look, he's risen from the dead. And so this rumor is going to get around. And so they want to make sure that Jesus' body doesn't get snatched during the night. And then the rabbi said, the last decept- this last deception, the deception of stealing Jesus' body, making people think that he rose from the dead, will be the worst of all the deceptions that Jesus could have possibly given. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, hey, look, okay, I understand. I hear y'all's r- rationale. He says, so take a guard and, p- and go to the tomb and secure, and make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And now when it says a guard here, or the guard. It's in the Greek a plural usage of the word. This is not referring to a single guard that was at the tomb. This is referring to, if you might think of, a squadron or a, a, a platoon, if you would. And a guard in Jesus' day would have been about 15 Roman soldiers plus one officer who was over them. And they would have, let, they would have had a very deeply invested interest in making sure that nobody stole the body of their prisoner, even though their prisoner was dead. And the reason for that being is because in Roman days, if you lost your prisoner, you're a prison guard, you lose your prisoner, you also lose your life. Uh, so the uh, kind of got a vested interest there. Even if the body, even if the prisoner, your guard is dead, you lose that body, you're going to lose your life. And so these guys have a lot at stake in the fact that Jesus' body, somebody comes and attacks them and gets snatched and that sort of thing. And we see an example of this a little bit later in Scripture over in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, um, Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi. They're in the back of this cave that's been hollowed out uh, on the side of a mountain just up north of the, of the city of Philippi. And they're singing and they're worshiping the Lord. And suddenly the prison shake and all the jail doors open. And uh, Paul and Silas, you, you know, you think they take off. And so the prison guard, he wakes during the night, Acts chapter 16, verse 27. And it says, at this the jailer woke up. And when he came to the prison and saw the doors open... He drew his sword out of its scabbard to kill himself. Uh, he was going to—he was going to take his own life. He was going to jump on his sword. Why was he going to do that? Well, the scripture says because he figured the prisoners had all escaped. See, he knows how it works. I lose my prisoners, I lose my life. Got a lot at stake. Um, and so he just figures, hey, look, my superiors find out. I know what the consequences are going to be. I might as well go ahead and save them the trouble, right? And then it's at that that Paul then cries out and says, no, 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 stop, stop. We're all here, Paul shouted. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Folks, this is not some antiquated law uh, that the Rome, some of the Romans observed. This was Roman law. You lose your soldier, you lose your life. All of the Roman guard knew that this is what would happen to them. And so do we really think that three women and a group of unarmed fishermen could have taken 15 battle-hardened Roman soldiers at the tomb. I mean, that's preposterous. That's crazy. That there's no way that this possibly could have happened. And so that leads me to our second piece of evidence, and that is, number two, that when the message began circulating around Jerusalem that Jesus had risen from the dead, all that the rabbis had to do, if they're so determined uh, to take Jesus out, all they had to do was to reveal the body of Jesus. And so it's evidence number two is the rabbis and their determination to squash this at all costs, to squash this, this uh, news. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 12. 
It says when the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, that, because they've got this, this crisis now, right, that Jesus is, has been resurrected from the dead, they devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, some hush money, verse, seven, verse 13, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Because everybody knows that those disciples had no chance against all these soldiers and their spears and their swords. And so maybe they were all just snoozing, had tried to sleep one off, and the disciples came in and stole the body during the night. And they give them some hush money to, to push that story out there into, into the public. You say, hang on, Gordon, hold on. You just said that if these guys lost their soldiers, they lose, if these soldiers lost their, their, their prisoner, that they would lose their life. I mean, what happened to that? What's going on there? Um, and that's right. Watch what happens now. Verse 14. And if this report, that is the news that you lost your prisoner, gets back to the governor, that is, it gets back to Pilate, we will satisfy Pilate, and we will keep you out of trouble. See that? They're going to satisfy Pilate. They're going to pay him off, too. They're going to bribe Pilate, too, because they don't want this story that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead getting out there into the public sphere. And so they're going to bribe the soldiers, and they're going to bribe Pilate, and they're going to make sure that this story stays quiet, or at least that it's spun the way that they want it told. And interestingly, the idea that the rabbis were trying to squelch news about Jesus' resurrection kept on going. They keep trying to squelch this, to try and squash this, uh, this news, even after Jesus had ascended on back up to heaven. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 says, The priest, that is the Jewish politicians, and the captain of the guard, there's our word guard used in the plural sense, and the Sadducees, that's a political group themselves, came up to Peter and John, those are Jesus' disciples, while they were speaking to the people. Verse 2, and they, that's the Jewish politicians, the captain of the guard, etc., they came up to Peter and John, and, uh, and they were greatly disturbed. Why were they disturbed? It says, because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested Peter and John twice. They beat Peter and John twice. They threw them in jail twice. And they told them on two different occasions here to stop telling people about Jesus resurrected from the dead. They don't want that story out there. They don't want anybody to think that Jesus had come back to life. Now, Peter and John, friends, they didn't listen to what those rabbis had to say. But the question occurred to me, why did the rabbis have to spend all that money bringing all those, bribing all those soldiers, bribing Pilate, arresting people, beating people, throwing people in jail, trying to keep all this story just the way they want it going? Because it would have been a whole lot more simple. And believe me, they would have done it. To just go to the tomb, roll the stone back, drag the corpse of Jesus out, put it on a cart, roll it through the city streets of Jerusalem, and let everybody see this dead Savior. And they could have just, sh- it, would just it would have been conclusive, right? Look, here's the, here's the one that they're saying has been resurrected from the dead. Here he is, he's dead, here's his body. And they would have just, just taken him through the streets and would have ended everything right on the spot. But friends, the reason that they didn't do that is because there was no body in the tomb. He had been resurrected from the dead. And And so we've already agreed that no human person could have come and stolen the body of Christ because it was protected by this Roman guard. 
And that's why the Roman soldiers were there. And yet the body was still wasn't there. And so the question again, where did it go since it clearly wasn't in the tomb? Well, that leads us to evidence number three that proves the resurrection. And evidence number three is the evidence of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, it begins to recount the order in which Jesus uh, appeared, in which he showed himself to, um, to individuals. And he, so Paul says, to, writing to the church in Corinth, he says, uh, chapter 15, verse 3, For what I received, what I, news I heard, I passed on to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, verse 4, that Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and watch now, verse 5, and that he appeared to Peter and to the twelve apostles. So that's where it begins. He appears to Peter, to the twelve apostles. Verse 6, And then after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time, most of whom, he says, are still living. I mean, this is almost like the Apostle Paul in writing this letter to the people in Corinth that are probably asking the question, how do we know? I mean, you've told us that Jesus came back to life, but how do we know that he really came back to life? It's almost as though Paul is inviting the Christians in Corinth to say, go ask some of these people. They're still alive. They're still living. There's 500 plus of them. Go ask them to corroborate the story that we've shared with you. So Paul's almost inviting it. And the reason he's doing that is because Paul is confident that the people that are asked, hey, you saw the risen Christ, right? Yeah, I saw him. That the story that they'll give will be exactly down the line from one person to the next. Verse 7. And then Jesus, uh, he's not done yet, he appeared to James, that is Jesus' brother, and then again to the apostles. And last of all, Paul said, he appeared to me also. Um, I did a little hunting this week and found a really great article that talks about this particular theorem called Bayes' Theorem. And we're going to toss it up on the screen here. This is Bayes' Theorem. And uh, the T in this theorem represents the eyewitnesses. And the reason why this, um, this theorem was, had uh, evolved, where it came from, uh, was because uh, people in the, in, who, who prosecute uh, uh, um, against uh, other individuals who committed a crime, um, they were having difficulty in proving that uh, you know, the number of eyewitnesses that they had um, kind of was, was a little shoddy. And so people have kind of gotten away from using eyewitnesses in court uh, today, kind of common law thing that's a trend that's come about because of the DNA testing and stuff like that. I'm sorry, this is all in this article. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's crazy to me too, right? I don't understand this. I looked at this thing, I was like, huh? Right? But in any case, the T in this represents the eyewitnesses. And when you're running the theorem through, and the number of, uh, basically what it's saying is the number of eyewitnesses that you have that corroborate the same story, as that number of eyewitnesses goes up, so does the probability. That's what the theorem's saying. So does the probability that the event that they're talking about actually occurred. And so this guy by the name of Dr. John uh, DePoe, who teaches at Western Michigan University, he's a mathematician, he wrote an article entitled, this is what got my attention, and uh, take a deep breath because it's a, it's a long one. He writes uh, an article called, A Bayesian Analysis of the Cumulative Effects of Independent Eyewitness Testimony for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a dissertation title for you, right? And so he said, and I quote in the article, he said, One can count as many as 520 witnesses of the resurrection. Given such a number of independent witnesses testifying that an event occurred, 
the probability that this event did indeed happen goes up exponentially and becomes, this is a mathematician talking here, becomes close to certain. Close to certain, he said, end of quote. You say, hey, Gordon, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you just always miss the obvious. Leave it to Gordon, it's the obvious, right? What if these people were lying? What if this was just they got together in a room? I know we got 500 of us. It's harder to control the information when you got 500 versus 12, but that's going to be part of how we sell this thing. And we'll get all these people together, and we'll, we'll come up with this big hoax. We'll come up with this big story, this elaborate conspiracy thing. And, I mean, isn't that possible that they could have done that, friends? That's not possible at all. It's not possible at all. And the reason being is because of evidence number four, and that is the evidence of the martyrdom of those who testified to the resurrection of Christ. The martyrdom of those who testified to the resurrection of Christ. I trust that you know that none of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection recanted their testimony, ever. They all agreed all the way till their last breath that Jesus had risen from the dead. For example, James was martyred by Herod in Acts chapter 12. Stephen was martyred in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 7. Thomas, who took the gospel to India, uh, and there's a church there dedicated to Thomas coming to India to share the gospel with the people in the first century. I mean, the disciple of Jesus went to India, shared the gospel there. Hundreds of thousands of people came to faith in Christ in the first century. Read your church history. It's really amazing. And so he was martyred in India. John Mark was martyred in Egypt. Philip was martyred in Turkey. Matthew went down into Ethiopia, the only country in that part of the world, including the Arabian desert area, the only part of the world where it is still a Christian nation. Ethiopia is still a Christian nation. Uh, Matthew went down there and shared the gospel, and millions of people, including the king of Ethiopia, came to faith in Christ, and Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. The apostle Paul was beheaded by Emperor Nero in Rome in 66 AD. Nero also crucified upside down the apostle Peter, the guy that Jesus had left in charge. And the spot where he crucified Peter is what is today referred to as St. Peter's Square. It's where the Vatican is at. You can go there today and you can stand on the spot, look at the spot, where there's a big spire sticking up, where uh, Peter was crucified upside down. And it wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just the disciples of Jesus that went out and shared the gospel and gave their life on behalf of this. Um, It was also the hundreds of eyewitnesses who gave their life. They would not recant their testimony of the resurrection. Why? Because they knew it to be true. Friends, I have met many people who were willing to give their life for something that they believed in for a cause. But I've never met somebody who was willing to give their life for something that they knew to be a fraud. That they knew to be a fraud. People don't do this. People don't give their life for a scam. They don't give their life for a hoax. I mean, you watch the crime scene investigation TV shows. Sooner or later, somebody cracks under the bright light, right? I mean, these people were getting crucified. They were getting lit on fire. They were getting impaled on posts. They were having their families split apart. They were being tossed in jail and disappearing from the earth. I mean, sooner or later, somebody's going to say, you know what? I'm sorry, but you guys, y'all just go forward with that story that you got over there. I'm not going to be a part of that. I really don't feel like getting crucified today. And so I'm just, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm recanting my story. But yet none of those people cracked. None of them recanted their story because they really did see the risen Christ. And they were willing to die 
rather than recant their testimony. All right, well, let's summarize. How do we know that the resurrection really happened? What compel? Yeah, there we go. Oh, sorry. Um, Claire and I are training for a marathon. I think some of y'all know that. And yesterday was 14 miles. After I threw my back out on Friday, oh, golly, it feels so good. I'm so sorry. Just had to have a little moment there. All right, so how do we know that the resurrection really happened? What compelling evidence is there? Well, number one is the evidence of the Roman soldiers, which makes human tampering with the body of Jesus impossible. I mean, they had so much on the line. They were going to lose their own life if they lost the body of their prisoner. This did not happen, that they stole the body of Christ. Uh, evidence number two, we have the evidence of Jesus' enemies who could, not, who could have stopped Christianity dead in its tracks by going and retrieving the corpse of Jesus, rolling it through the streets of Jerusalem, or at least come up with some sort of an alternative spin story that was satisfactory as to what happened to the dead body of Jesus. But they couldn't even do that. Evidence number three are the eyewitnesses, 500 plus of them, who agreed that they had seen Jesus back alive again and the probability of so many people corroborating the same story right down the line. Paul inviting people. I mean, they're alive today. Go ask them. And in his letter to the Corinthians, being mathematically a mathematical certainty. And then finally, evidence number four, we have the martyrdom of the eyewitnesses, people who were willing to die rather than recount their story um, or their testimony of Jesus resurrected from the dead. Um, so... Can I prove to you that Jesus really did rise from the dead in like an elaboratory experiment? Can I bring him back and have him stand here in front of you? No, I can't do that. Uh, but what I can do is give you such a preponderance of evidence, which I hope that you've heard here today, that you can say, you know what, beyond reasonable doubt, mathematical certainty, uh, the, the, the body couldn't have been stolen from the tomb. They couldn't, couldn't produce the body and rolled it through town. All of these evidences that we can say, you know what, there is great certainty, given the evidence, contextual evidence, historical evidence, biblical evidence, to support that Jesus really did rise back from the dead. Um, you say, well, Gordon, that's really great to know. I mean, I'm just so happy. It's Easter, Jesus rose from the dead. We knew we were going to hear a message about that today. But, I mean, what difference does this make to my life, right? i got to get the kids off to soccer practice on Monday, and we got a little Easter egg thing. i got people coming out to the house, hurry up, get done talking, because the roast is getting ready to start burning. So please help me out and understand what difference all this makes to my life. Well, let me take us back to the wonderful promise that Jesus made about the afterlife at the beginning of our sermon that we read. John chapter 11 and verse 25. Jesus said, He who believes in me will live in the afterlife, even though he dies, that is, here on this earth. You say, Gordon, but lots of religious leaders have said this. I mean, Islam says that you know, you're going ha to have an afterlife, you're going to go to heaven. Uh, Buddhism teaches that you're going to have some sort of nirvana afterlife. Hinduism teaches that you're going to become a cow someday and you're going to be able to just stand out there and graze in the field. I mean, Mormonism teaches that you're going to have some sort of an afterlife and get to celestial heaven and, and all that. And science, have your own planet. And Scientology um, does this. I mean, how do I know which one of these isms and ologies is right? Well, it's very simple. Which of these leaders of these religions rose from the dead? Muhammad isn't alive. He didn't rise from the dead. We can go to his tomb today. 
L. Ron Hubbard, the inventor of Scientology, he's not alive. He died. He's gone. Um, Joseph Smith, he didn't rise from the dead. But Jesus rose from the dead. And I love what the Bible says about this. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. That God has given us proof. That God has given us proof that indeed Christianity, that what Jesus taught is true by raising Jesus from the dead. Proof, um, you said, proof for those of us who are followers of Christ that we are not following some sort of cleverly devised hoax, some sort of conspiracy that these 500 people had gotten together and come up with, proof that indeed the things that Jesus had said were true, proof that indeed the promises of God to us, the promises that Jesus made are true, that he can back it up with himself being resurrected from the dead. Listen, friends, follow a dead Savior, and you will end up just like him. Follow a living Savior, and you will end up just like him. And our living Savior said, the person who believes in me will live in the afterlife, even though he dies here on this earth. And not only that, But because of our surety of the resurrection, friends, we can look at the grave and face it with great confidence. We can say to the grave, you don't scare me. I have nothing to fear in death. Because I know that when I pass from this earth, I'm just traveling on to the other side. Um, I was uh, this past week spending some time with my daughter working through her history lesson, and she was studying the Great Awakening. Um, The Great Awakening was a movement uh, here in the colonial America back in the 1740s or so, uh, where uh, tens of thousands, some would say around a third of the American population, uh, came to faith in Christ um, during that period in, in American history. It was interesting to me as we were studying through it to read and discover that not only did the Great Awakening happen in the 1740s, but not long thereafter, the, uh, the bubbling up, the desire for America to become a, a, a nation that was, um, uh, was, was, had, had gotten its liberty from the British government um, came about. Because the people in America knew if we revolt against the British government, we're probably going to lose our farms, We're probably going to lose our families. We're probably going to lose our lives. But here's a nation of people who were so convinced. Over a third of people came to faith in Christ over like a three or five-year period. And they came to faith in Christ, and they were so sure of the promises that Jesus had made them that they were willing to go forward and rebel against their government and seek liberty for this nation. Now, I want to encourage all of us here who have put our faith and trust in Jesus that on the other side of eternity is the Lord Jesus who will be there to greet us and to keep every one of the promises that he made to us. And friends, this is what Easter is all about, to be able to look the grave in the eyeballs and say, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not worried about what's going to happen to me. I know what's going to happen to me. The Bible's already told me the other side of this story. I serve a living Savior. And I know that I'll be living with him for the rest of eternity. But we also have a lot of us here today who are following this living Savior. And we also have a lot of us who aren't following this living Savior. Some of us here today are following a dead Savior. 
Maybe it's religion. Maybe you expect religion to save you. Maybe you think church attendance will save you. Friends, church attendance has never saved anybody. Never in the history of the world. Maybe you're following a person other than Jesus and you think that that person can lead you toward heaven. Maybe you're following a philosophy or an ideology and you think if you follow that and and live the right way that that somehow, you know, if you get all your mental ducks in a row and you intellectually are are elevated and and inspired, uh, that somehow that'll get you to heaven. Maybe you think if you do enough good things and you do enough good works here on the earth that that will earn your way into the good graces of God and that therefore he'll let you into heaven. Friends, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father. And where's the Father? The Father's in heaven. No one gets to heaven but through me. So we're going to offer you the chance right now to take in, to trade in, uh, your dead saviors that you've been following. And to trade for that, the risen Savior for your own. I'm going to ask for us in just a moment to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I'm going to say a line of a prayer, and I'm going to offer you to pray that prayer after me, just where you're seated, silently to yourself. No need to pray out loud. God hears your prayers. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer after me. If you're interested in embracing the living Savior, Jesus Christ, right here today, it's Easter weekend. I can't think of a better time for you to embrace the resurrected Lord. So here we go. Let's bow our heads together and pray. You pray silently right after me. Lord Jesus, I come to you today because I believe that the resurrection really happened. And I want to renounce every dead Savior that I've ever trusted to get me to heaven. And instead, I want to embrace the living Savior, Jesus Christ, as my only Savior and as the only way for me to have my sins forgiven. Lord Jesus, wash my heart clean. Make it whiter than snow. Give me a new life. In these very moments, I give you my life. And I put my trust in the work you did on the cross for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for a chance to come here, to hear your word, to hear your truth declared over our lives. Lord, we ask now, as we turn our attention toward this time of communion, that in these quiet moments, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, that you would assure us that as we have put our faith and trust in you, we need not fear the grave. For to die is to go on to be with you in eternity forever. That's your promise, Lord. And Lord, if we've this morning prayed that prayer and invited you to be our Lord and Savior, may we receive these elements with great gratitude in our hearts for what you have done for us. Speak to us in these quiet moments, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.